You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. Amen. Y'all grab a seat if you would. Let me invite you to turn to the incredible book of Romans chapter 12. Uh, Big thanks to James for teaching and preaching all of uh, Romans chapter 11, the entire chapter last week. It's a big chapter, but it's really kind of one big idea and uh, did a fantastic job with that. And today I'm going to preach the entirety uh, beginning to end of Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. So, If you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 12. I'm so excited uh, to be back in this book. We paused it back in, I believe it was August, uh, and so I'm excited to jump back in, and we'll be in here for a few weeks, uh, actually a few months, and we'll finish up this book, uh, I believe scheduled for uh, mid-June right now. Uh, it's, it's really hard to overstate how important these two verses are. Uh, if the Bible was a mountain range, some of y'all have been to uh, the Rocky Mountains, some of you have been up to, uh, to Colorado, and you know that uh, the Rocky Mountains are big, but there's a few 14ers, 14,000 foot peaks that stand up uh, a little bit higher than the rest. Uh, if the Bible's a mountain range, there's a few that are 14,000 footers that you just kind of see and know, and they have a monumental place, uh, not just in history and shape the church and shaping Christian thought and behavior, uh, but in shaping the world. And this is one of those texts. Uh, so if the Bible is the mountain range, this is a monumental peak that's very important. It stands above, um, it doesn't stand above the rest of the Bible, obviously, but it is important for us and we'll talk through and look through why it's crucial for us to catch this transition, which is the big transition in the book of Romans, the most important letter ever written, and this is the hinge that, that the book of Romans moves on. So I want to do something a little bit different this morning, but if you would, where you're at, let me ask you to stand. Uh, I want you to stand. I want to uh, read this uh, over us this morning. I know it's been a busy week. I know for many of you, soccer started, uh, and so your lives are over, and uh, just a lot of things going on, a lot of distractions in life. And um, so what we want to happen today uh, is to have a, a church meeting, a family of God's people where we come, we open up the Word of God, we invite the Spirit of God to speak to us, we get to uh, be blessed by the people of God and uh, invite God to remove distractions as we do that together. So if you wouldn't mind turning your attention and I'll read this for us. This is Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you would, let me pray for us again. Bow your heads where you're at. Father, we love you. We need you. We praise you. I pray that you would make this text come alive uh, to us and for each one of us on the journeys that we are on uh, following Jesus or maybe curious about what it means to follow Jesus this morning, uh, that you would truly meet us exactly where we are in our hearts and our minds and that you would help transform us. Father, I pray that uh, our lives are marked by uh, the transforming power of the gospel. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I invite your spirit to do this for the glory of Christ. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Will y'all grab a seat? Uh, This is, like I said, a huge hinge, a huge transition point in the book of Romans. And it's important that we can't miss this handoff. uh, Because what has happened is the first 11 chapters have been uh, the gospel. The the, the biggest, most robust treatise of just what the gospel is, uh, who Jesus is, and what he has done. And it's a big package of the gospel. And this transition now moves to then how are we supposed to live our lives? So we're moving from theology in a great sense, to practice. Uh, We're moving from information to response. Uh, We're moving from a description of the gospel to a description of the Christian life. Chapters 1 through 11 are, again, probably the greatest description of the gospel. And then verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 are one of the most precise summaries of the Christian life. And this is what is at stake, before we unpack this, this is what's at stake for us as Christians in the world, uh, trying to impact the world for Jesus Christ, if we do catch this transition and if we do not catch this transition. What happens if we miss the transition from the gospel to Christian life or from theology to practice is we have a lot of good information, but it hasn't necessarily changed the way we live our lives. And the reason that's incredibly important is because if Christians miss this handoff and this transition, you get a world that is very, very confused. You get a world that is very confused because they've got Christians that uh, portray and believe one thing and yet their lives uh, really don't look much different than the world in which they live. And that's incredibly confusing to have this, like like the statements of faith that we believe about what the gospel is and what the gospel does and who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. If we believe those things and are not changed by those things, the world is incredibly confused. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you have that confusion. Maybe you know some Christians that uh, claim some things, yet their lives are just like everybody else's. Uh, I want to apologize, really, on our behalf and to say that we're we're trying, and the validity of the gospel is not based on the obedience of Christians, uh, but it sure is helpful to have some Christian lives around you that are marked by transformation uh, to show the world that there's a better way, that the Jesus way is actually the better way. So there's a lot at stake if we miss this. If we miss the transition, we'll have really good theology, but it may not change actually the way that we live our lives to make us different from the world, to make us salt, uh, to make us light, and to make us actually helpful um, to the culture and the place where God has placed us. But if we do make the transition, if we believe everything that we have read and studied for almost a year about the gospel and allow it to change us, to truly transform. That's the word that Paul is going to use. We're not conformed to the pattern of the culture around us and look like everybody else, but we're transformed. That's what helps us to be salt and light and actually different and helpful to the world where Jesus has sent us. So this, it cannot be overstated how important this transition is. Uh, We have to give as much attention to the second part of Romans, which has to do with a lot of practical things, as we do to the first part, which has to do to the gospel, right? A, A lot of people will kind of trend one way or the other, will just be very practical, and so it's easy for those of you that are very practical and just love the what what to do's, like what am I supposed to do? Give me some things about how I'm supposed to live my life. Uh, if that's you, you gotta be really careful not to overlook the incredible importance of the first 11 chapters, the, the gospel. And some of you, maybe you're more theologically inclined and you love reading uh, books with lots of footnotes and theology and you love that. Well, we can't miss the transition to the, the reality that that's supposed to change our lives. 
And so we need to give both sides of this uh, incredibly uh, profound book uh, our attention. And something that's unique maybe to the culture that we live in as Christians in the West, in a post-Christian, post-modern world in the United States, um, there's a lot of talk about, and I've heard this you know, my whole life, that uh, a lot of times in, in the American church, the invitation is to accept Jesus And we've talked about this before. That's not the language that Jesus uses. Uh, Jesus has invited us not to accept him, but to follow him. And what the the rest of Romans is trying to produce is not someone who's just simply accepted some truths about Jesus, but someone who's willing to follow him. Okay, are you all ready? If you're ready, say ready. Okay, we're just going to go through this text and highlight a few things here as we go. The first thing that's incredibly important is he says, I appeal to you, therefore. Okay, everybody say, therefore. Corny dad joke, you knew it was coming. If you see a therefore, you're supposed to look to see what? What it is there for. This therefore is there for a transition, the transition in the book of Romans to we know what the gospel is, now what does the gospel do? How are we supposed to therefore live our lives? If you look through not just the book of Romans, but most of the epistles of the New Testament, they never start with do this. They, they don't start with, okay, do this. They always start with, okay, this has been done. They always start with this huge case about what Jesus has already done on our behalf for us. And then in light of that, therefore, we're supposed to live a certain way. And if we remove the first half, then all you get is kind of this moralism that's not the gospel. It's not the Christian life. uh, Just this kind of, hey, go do this, 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 and this. uh, Because there's nothing strong enough to drive that. And so what is driving this is incredibly important. Therefore, in light of everything we've learned about Jesus and about the gospel, we're supposed to be driven by something. In light of grace. Do we believe in grace? Yes. Why am I up here preaching? Uh, Grace. Why are we here? Grace. We believe in grace. We need grace. Romans has presented to us a really strong case that if it were not for grace, we would have nothing. We believe in grace. Do we believe that what uh, the, the ingredient that uh, showers the favor of God is not our actions but our faith? When we transfer our faith from ourselves and our own resume uh, to Jesus and his resume, we, we're faith people. We love faith. Romans has taught us to be about faith. Uh, it's taught us about redemption, that Jesus is redeeming broken that he is putting back the pieces of things that have been shattered, that he's redeeming people, that he's redeeming relationships, marriages, and really the entire cosmos. We believe that, we know that, we love that. Uh, are we a forgiveness people? Do we like forgiveness? Everybody say yes. These are supposed to be softball lobs over the plate, by the way. Uh, don't think too deeply. We, we love forgiveness. Why? Because we believe we have been forgiven an incredible amount, and Jesus died to make that possible. Uh, we believe in freedom. We believe that Jesus has set us free from fear, from guilt, from shame, from sin, from the wages of sin. Uh, like what we have learned about the gospel. We believe those things. And Paul is saying now, you put all that together, therefore, okay, because of all those things, the the gospel has to be the driving force to the Christian life or it just simply will not be strong enough to sustain the Christian life. Okay, if the Christian life is driven by fear or if it's driven by earning or if it's driven by anything else than the therefore, the gospel, it's just uh, impotent to do what, uh, what it claims that it can do. So therefore, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, 
by the mercies of God. Everybody say mercies. Do we like mercy? Yes, we love mercy. This is saying uh, by the mercies of God or because of the mercies of God or because of the way that God has dealt with us in Christ, that in the rear view mirror is what drives us to live the Christian life. And in a way, Romans chapter 12 is going to begin this long chain of almost like back-to-back tweetable things uh, about the Christian life. Just little snips here, here, and he's just going to shotgun a ton of those for us. He's going to say all of those are driven by the mercies of God. Okay, if Paul was to phrase this a different way, he would say the motivation for living your life as a Christian in the world is because we have already received the mercies of God, right? And that's very different than trying to earn the mercies of God. Uh, Every other religion or or thought pattern of how humans should interact with God, uh, what, what happens is you've got these mandates about how you're supposed to live your life. And for every other religion, the, the finish line is if you can do well enough, you'll be accepted, You'll kind of get to the end of your life, and if you run your race well enough, then you'll be accepted, you'll be uh, forgiven, you will be saved. And the Christian life is the exact opposite. That the starting line for us is because of Christ you have been accepted, you have received the mercies of God, and so we run the race very differently. We're supposed to run this race from a point of acceptance, not trying to earn any acceptance. It's much like a kid that's growing up in a healthy family. They know from the beginning they're part of the family that's not ever in jeopardy. Their behavior doesn't uh, indicate how well they're accepted. They're just simply accepted. And now for the rest of their life, they learn what it means to be part of the family and to uphold the family name. With Christians, it starts, the, the gospel starting line is the mercies of God. So Paul's saying, in light of the mercies of God. Uh, if you all were here for the first portion of, of Romans, you know that it was written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, of all people, uh, tr- tried to like really throw his, his, all his chips in the table of, of serving Jesus, right? Probably, I think most accounts, people would say, other than Jesus Christ himself, the most impactful human life for the Christian experience in the world has been the Apostle Paul. Okay, what drove Paul to such an incredible Christian life? Was he trying to earn anything or was he absolutely convinced that he already had possessed everything? In Philippians chapter 3, uh, he phrases it this way. He's talking about why he's so serious about living a Christian life. And he says, I, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. Okay, so Paul believes that, that the Christian life is driven not by trying to earn something, not by trying to be accepted, but that's the starting line for us by the mercies of God. And then this is what he invites us to do. So now if that's the what, if, if that's the, the why behind what he's going to tell us for the next many weeks and months about what we're supposed to do with our lives. Uh, what then are we supposed to do? And he says this, uh, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, everybody say living sacrifice. If you read this in the original language that it was written in Greek, that's a very confusing statement. In fact, I think if you read it in English, it's probably fairly confusing. Don't those things seem a little bit juxtaposed and at odds with one another? Uh, in the original language, like what he wrote is he says, make yourself a, a living killing. 
You're like, I'm confused. You got to pick one. Paul, you got to pick one. I can't be a living and a killing. I don't understand. So let's unpack what is Paul asking Christians to do uh, in light of the mercies of God? Uh, a sacrifice, a killing. That's the, that's the word for sacrifice. So if you were a Jew in the first century, you would understand that Paul's hearkening back to uh, an Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay, so there was sin offerings where if you sinned, uh, an animal would die. You would sacrifice that animal, and that would appease for a time God's wrath against your sin, and you would be forgiven. Uh, That's not what this is talking about. Uh, We believe that the sin offering for us was Jesus Christ, the sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God, slain in our place for our forgiveness once and for all. But there was a second type of sacrifice that's predominant in the Old Testament. It's a whole burnt offering. And what a whole burnt offering was, was you would take an animal that was uh, incredibly valuable to you, and you would present it to God, and you would burn up the whole thing. And what that represented is that you are entirely at God's disposal. Everything you have, everything you are, belongs to God, and you're representing that through this burnt offering of something incredibly valuable to you. That's what Paul is calling us to do. He's, ta- he's calling us to give our ev- everything about our lives and to say, like, everything about my life is yours. It's at your disposal. You get to do what you want to do with my life. That's the sacrifice um, that he is talking about, the living sacrifice. The, the, the living sacrifice, the living portion of that kind of carries with this. Like it's something that you do over and over and over. And uh, a lot of theologians have said this same little phrase that uh, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar every day. Right, sacrifice, you kill it, it's dead, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. Uh, a living sacrifice, it's like you got to do it every day. <laughs> and some of you, maybe that's your story. In fact, I, I think all of us, to some extent, this is our story. If you're a Christian, there is a moment when you just said, Jesus, you can have everything. Uh, I've tried, I'm not doing a great job with my life, why don't you take it? And then over time, you realize that you've kind of taken the reins back a little bit, right? You start singing songs like, oh, Jesus, take the wheel. Why? Because you grab the wheel at some point. And why we're sitting in the driver's seat, I have no idea, but uh, uh, that's as far as I'll chase that song down. <laughs> like, at, at some point, like, you know what, Jesus, you can have my whole life, and we're just submitted to him with everything. And then over time, you realize that you've kind of, you pulled some of that control back, or you've kind of crawled off the altar. That's why Jesus says it this way. He says to not just take up your cross, but to what? Jesus said, if you're going to be a disciple, be willing to take up your cross daily. Right, that, that's, that's what Paul is saying in light of the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means this is a decision that needs to be done every day, every week, every month, every year. Because if you're like me, over time you realize you've taken back quite a bit of control. So maybe that's, maybe that's the takeaway for you this morning. Do you remember a time in your past, in your life, when you really just submitted your life to God, said, here, this is my burnt offering, you can have it, it's all at your disposal, and now you've pulled some of that back. He says a living sacrifice is not a, de- it's, it's, it's a continual, perpetual, never-ending, turning loose of our control and giving it to God. This is going to sound um, pretty dramatic, but I think it is absolutely true. Don't miss this. What, what, what Paul is saying is the natural response of the Christian to submit everything in our lives to, for God, for his purposes. That, that, like, if that's at the center of the Christian life, to 
relinquish control. What's at the center of the American life is to maintain control. Okay, don't, don't miss this. There has never been a culture in history, in the history of planet Earth, that is more averse to the essence of the Christian life. I think that's true. There's never been a culture in the history of planet Earth that is more averse to the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be Christian? To give up control. I don't control my life. Somebody else gets to tell me what to do. What's the essence of American? Nobody can tell me what to do. I do what I want, right? And and so we need to feel and know that this is an incredibly difficult thing as American Christians that we are called to do, to give up control to someone else. And yet that's what it means to be a living sacrifice. He keeps going and he describes this. So the, 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 the driving force is, it's the gospel. It's that we've already received the mercy of God. What do we do? Offer our body as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? He calls it, he says that that is our uh, spiritual worship. Everybody say spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. He's saying that this is the way that we worship God. And the word spiritual, it's not the the best translation uh, for the original word that Paul used. Um, You're going to recognize this word very quickly. Um, The word that he uses is logikos. This is our, our logikos worship or our logical worship or the logical response. There are some illogical responses to things. If you have kids, like, you know, you know what that means, uh, just disproportionate responses to something. What Paul is saying is that if, if the gospel's true, everything we believe about who Jesus is, what he has done, the only logical response to that is for you to offer your life back to God. And, and something unique about worship, and I want to tease this out for just a moment, um, because worship is such a unique thing. It, it's unique to humans. Animals don't worship. Plants don't worship. Humans have been given this incredible ability, and it's natural. It's inside of the DNA of humans to worship, and that doesn't mean to stand and sing. A lot of times, especially in the church culture, we equate worship with singing. And singing is most obviously a part of worship, but it's not even the biggest part. Worship in the Bible is the way that you respond with your life. And, and we're, we're just, we're created by God to respond to greatness. And so whatever we perceive to be the greatest thing, the greatest uh, human achievement, the greatest uh, team effort, the greatest beauty, if we perceive greatness, then we naturally uh, just kind of respond to that. Uh, and I would use the term worship that. Okay? We ju- we're coming off the heels of uh, the Super Bowl. Anybody remember that? How'd the Cowboys do in that, by the way? Too soon. <laughs> you know, it's so unique because you can look in any segment of life and you can see worship, right? You can see why is it that, 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 that these people that we've never met, we don't know them, and yet they're really good at what they do physically uh, with their job, with their, with their team. And so why is it that that builds such a strange community? You know, I've been to a Cowboys game where there were strangers that did not know each other, took their shirts off, and gave each other's hugs, right? That's never happened here on a Sunday morning. 
Like, why is that? Why did that produce such a strange community? Because they both kind of valued and were responding to the same thing. Why were they willing to drive a long way, sit in much more uncomfortable seats than these, uh, people crammed in everywhere, everything's loud, everything's overpriced. Like, why were they willing to, 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 to do all that, to invest all their money, to wear all the shirts, to respond, to stand, to cheer? They knew when to stand, they knew when to, like, why, why is that? Because humans are designed to respond to worship. So, as a human, you don't get to decide if you will worship something. You're going to worship. You're going to put your, uh, your affections and your attention to just what you perceive as the greatest thing. We're going to be worshipers. We don't get to decide if. We just get to decide what. What will we worship? Will we worship this God? Will we worship that God? Will we worship ourselves? Will we worship our identity? Will we worship money? Will we worship success? Will we worship uh, comfort? We don't get to decide if we're going to worship. We get to decide what we're going to worship. And Paul says, if Je- listen, if Jesus really did what we believe Jesus did, that he left heaven that he invaded earth as a human, was absolutely sinless in word, thought, and deed, let himself, nobody took his life, he gave it, he laid it down, he was crucified on a cross, murdered on our behalf in our place for our sins, put into a grave for three days, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. If we believe that, the most logicos response to that is to offer your life back to God. That's worship. Everything else, it's illogical. Like if you put, (laughs) hang with me a second. If you put the story of Jesus and the Dallas Cowboys together, which one is a logical place to respond? Everybody said, (laughs) Jesus. I know I'm picking on sports. That's just the easiest one, I think. We all have our own places where we tend to uh, worship things. And am I saying that anybody that's a fan of sports is an idolater? Uh, no, a lot of you maybe, but not, not everyone. You can enjoy something without just it being rampant idolatry. But if you look around, you see it's a very unique human thing to give yourself to, re- to respond to where you perceive greatness. And the only logical response to be willing to sacrifice everything, to be a, a living sacrifice, is to the person of Jesus because of what he has done. That's what he means when he says this is our spiritual worship. This is our logical worship. This is the only logical response. Okay, if we believe chapters 1 through 11, then logically we will live a certain way. That's why a stingy Christian, it's illogical. I'm not saying we don't all struggle with it. I'm just saying it's illogical. If we believe that God is as generous as we say he is, uh, for that to produce in us something uh, opposed to that and something different than that, it's just it's illogical. So the logical response is if we believe in a generous God, then we become generous people. Uh, A Christian that's unwilling to forgive someone that sins against them, that's illogical, right? Because of what we believe about the cross and our forgiveness. The logical response to that is it creates someone that's like, like the parable that Jesus told. They realized they had been forgiven a lot, and so they were going to forgive a lot. That's a logical response. Uh, An unloving Christian We all know them. Maybe we have all been them at some point. That's illogical. 
If we believe what we believe about the gospel and the love of Jesus portrayed on the cross, that should produce in us, we should be the most loving, the most patient, the most humble people. A prideful Christian, that's illogical. It's not a logical response to what we believe. So he says, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, daily giving everything back to God. Why? That's the only logical response to Jesus. Like that is the only logical way that you should respond to the weightiness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. To daily offer ourselves back to God. Why? Because we believe the first part of the book. You all with me? That's why this transition is so important. So here's our two options. Uh, he gets into this. Option number one, he says, don't be conformed. So option number one, and these are for Christians, right? This is not just for people, for Christians. Christians can be option number one, conformed to the pattern of the world, or option number two, transformed to the will of God. Option number one, he says, don't, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you to feel like I'm giving you two good options. Uh, it's a bad option and a good option, okay? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, Okay, what in the world is Paul talking about? Uh, he doesn't say do not conform, right? That's an active verb. He doesn't say don't conform. He says don't be conformed. That's a passive. It's like if you don't really actively do something, it's just going to inevitably happen to you. If you're not doing something, and he's going to tell us what we're supposed to be doing, if you're not doing that, you're being swept by the, by the, by the, by the flow of the culture, Okay, and that's not a, a good godly direction that culture is, is going in. And I'm not just talking American culture. You know, the Bible says that basically every culture on the planet is flowing in a direction and it's not towards the worship of Jesus. It's flowing in a certain way. Uh, Satan's involved in moving it that way. He's the prince of the power of the air. And if we're not very careful, we're just in the flow of this river and it's just taking us where it wants us to go. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Kind of the imagery that's helpful for me to understand this, it's this idea of, of a, like a vessel, think of like a glass, a glass jar, a glass Coke bottle, and if you take a sponge and you shove the sponge into the Coke bottle, what's gonna, what's gonna happen to the sponge? The, the essence of the sponge hasn't changed, exactly the same, but it has been conformed to the pattern of the glass. It has taken on the shape of the glass. Paul is saying for a Christian, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. What is he saying? Don't be conformed to what everyone else does. Don't live like them. Don't think like them. Don't, 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 don't define the sin the way they do. Like There should be a, a distinct difference in the life of the Christian. Don't be conformed um, to the pattern of this world. Do y'all know that there, and I'm not giving you any new information, but I think it's important uh, for us, if we're going to labor to do this, to be very aware that there is a strong current in our culture. Hollywood is involved, business is involved, politics are involved, social media is involved, and, and that what, what, what takes place is all of these things together create a culture that's, if we're not aware of it as Christians, uh, we're going to get way off base and we're going to be conformed to the patterns of the world. 
how, how does this happen? I want to ask a few questions about this. Uh, sometimes Christians are conformed to the pattern of the world just simply by ignorance. Uh, I was in the world. I was of the world. I was not a Christian. Then I was saved. Now, I, I am a Christian, but I just I don't know anything. I don't know about the sexual ethic of the Bible. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my marriage. I don't know. Like just I don't know a lot of things about what it means to be a Christian. So the answer to that is to, to learn some things, right? And all of us, when we're saved, we come in with a lot of ignorance, right? There's just a lot of things that we don't know. That's one way that we are conformed to the patterns of this world. Um, The second one is if we hear or just constantly have a steady diet from the world more than from the Word of God. If If your sex ethic is more shaped by what you read online, articles that you read in the news, people that have opinions on social media, more than it is the word of God, you're going to be conformed. And my guess is that we're much more conformed to the patterns of this world than we're probably willing to admit. Because we're in the middle of this flow. The flow is, it's been moving for a long time. And the last many years, the flow has really picked up that it's moving in a lot of ways away from the, the, the will of God. Do not be conformed by the patterns of this world. I'll just have, take one example uh, because I think it's the, the easiest to see. Why is it that the average American Christian, their opinion about sex is violently different than the Bible's opinion? The average American now would say that that sex inside of marriage is not the only thing, the only way that God designed it to work. Why is that? Because we've been conformed to the pattern. Like nothing could be clearer in the scriptures that God created sex to be a a blessing and a joy inside a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. How in the world did we get a large group, a majority of Christians that don't believe that, been conformed to the pattern of this world, either never told that or being trained more by the world than by the word. And you can take that example and and put it in any scenario. And and there's a, we, we, we have to be aware of the pattern of the world. He says, don't be conformed or shoved into the mold to the pattern of this world. But, he says, here's, here, here, here's, here's what he's inviting us into. Here's what he's hoping for us. This is, here is what has changed the world. But be transformed. It just means changed. It means metamorphized. It means a, a, a brand new person. And Christians that have been transformed have been the changing agent f- f- in, in the world. So don't be conformed, but be transformed. Be con- and I love, especially in the New Testament, the way that they describe the, the event that happened when somebody moved from being a non-Christian to a Christian uh, was, was converted. Right? They, we use that term, oh, so-and-so was converted. That, what does that mean? It changed. They're just different. They're different. They were this way. Now they're this way. The gospel has this tendency to change us. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Your life is different. Your values are different. Your direction is different. The way we deal with conflict is different. The way we deal with money is different. The way we forgive is different. The way we deal with marriage is different. Everything is different. Why? Because the gospel has changed us. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. A Christian that is conformed to the culture around them is no use to them, no help. We don't provide them any better option. That's why it's so confusing to the culture if Christians miss this handoff. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. How? So you're like, oh, how, Paul? I get it. I understand. I don't want to be conformed. I want to be transformed. How? 
Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. Everybody say, renew your mind. Renew your mind. You renew your passport. You renew your driver's license. You renew your auto insurance. Paul says, you got to renew your mind. Okay, there's a difference. Hang with me on this. There's a difference between being a Christian and thinking like a Christian. Right? Being a Christian, takes, it takes a moment. It takes an instance where you decide, you know what, I, I repent, I believe, I am forgiven, born, again, saved. Like, it's, it's a moment that changes everything. But thinking like a Christian is not the same way. It's a process that takes your entire life. And what do you do? You renew your mind. You don't change what you do. We change how we think. And how we think changes what we do. Right? Actions are incredibly important, but we don't just change our actions we have to change what we believe, and Paul says to renew your mind. Three things, and I'll take these really quickly, just some practical ways. Well, how do we do that? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to renew our minds so that we let God transform us, not con- we're not conformed to the world around us? Uh, how do we renew our mind? Number one, this is earth-shattering, incredibly creative. You're going to love it. Read your Bibles. Right? Like there's just, there's nothing new under the sun. Christians have been saying this for 2,000 years and it's still the same. Like if we want to have our minds renewed, we need to know what God thinks about things more than what Facebook thinks about things, right? To read our Bible, have a steady diet of the Word of God. It's really difficult to renew your mind without the Word of God. Make it a steady diet. Have conversations. Read good uh, theological books. Read your Bible. Number two, understand that the culture that we live in is biased, okay? I'm not making any political statements here. I am saying that what drives most of the information we get is filtered, and it's not filtered in a way to produce people that worship and follow Jesus, right? Google and Apple are not concerned with creating Christians, and so they will filter things. They, you know, what we get is it's slighted. It's, it's, the, it's the culture be very careful the intake that you have because how on earth did we get to a place where most Christians uh, have an opposite view of sex from God? Culture, Hollywood, social media, it's, 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 it's changed very quickly, very dramatically what we believe about many things. So just be very careful that the media is trying to uh, conform Christians, okay? Number three, I have to move really quickly through this to develop a Christian mind. I taught a class uh, uh, in person for many years, but then online for the last many years at, at DBU, uh, Dallas Baptist University. Go Patriots! Uh, it was called developing a Christian mind. It's a Christian worldview class because it's an event that, that makes you a Christian, but it's a lifelong journey of renewing your mind that helps you to think and see the world like a Christian. And there's four questions. I just want to present these to you. Every worldview answers these questions in one way or another. I believe all of them are deficient except for the biblical worldview. How are we supposed to see the world? Four questions everybody has to answer. Basically, this gives them lenses to see and interact with the world around them. Who am I? Where am I? What has gone wrong? What's the solution? So as we learn to have a biblical worldview, to have the mind of Christ, to see the world as Jesus does, who are we? Uh, we're, We're not just primordial ooze, is that the word? 
that has like over time just kind of morphed into just kind of these beings. Like we're endowed by God as image bearers. Who are we? We're, we're image bearers of God that have been put on the planet to reflect his glory. That's important. That changes how we view the world. Who am I? Where am I? I'm in God's world. He owns it. We're, we're stewards. We're supposed to make it better than when we found it, but we don't own it. We're, 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 we're stewards of it. Who am I? Where am I? What has gone wrong? Okay, and this is where everything diverges. Because what Christians believe that has gone wrong is sin. Sin has broken everything. So what's the answer? What's the solution? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And so when we learn to see the world through the same lenses that Jesus does, it changes how we live. The, the rest of the world would agree that things are broken, but they're trying to fix it with money. They're trying to fix it with education. And what you're going to get is you're not going to get a society that's fixed. You're going to get a society that's very well-educated sinners, right? Like the problem is sin. What's the answer? The only answer to the world's woes is Jesus. So read your Bible. Understand that the culture around us has a flow. It's biased. And then labor to have the mind of Christ, to see the world as Jesus does. I want to let Paul have the last words and read this to you because I think it's that important. One last time, in light of grace, in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection, in light of uh, mercy, in light of everything that we know about Jesus, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable or logical worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And when Christians do that, we have a tendency to change the culture around us, to uh, introduce them to Jesus. Bow your head, close your eyes, where you're at, let's pray together. Father, we love you. I'm so grateful for the book of Romans and for your spirit to open it up uh, to us. I'm thankful for this church and these believers that have gathered together uh, as one, that you've broken down all the hostility um, between brothers and sisters in Christ so that we may be one family and one voice worshiping Jesus. Father, I pray very, very pointedly that you would help us not conform to the patterns of this world, but by the mercy and grace of God to truly live lives that are transformed. Help us to be able to endure the suffering and the persecution that inevitably comes when we are different. And I pray we would do it with patience and with humility and with grace so that people might meet you and know that you truly are supreme. We love you, we thank you, and I praise you for your goodness and your mercy that drives us uh, to live Christian lives. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.